Amen. Psalm 77, one more thing real quick. We got a lot of food left over from the wedding this morning or this afternoon. And so if you want any, um, there's beans and I believe there's like enchiladas and some other things back there. Just see rose because we got a bunch of it. Anyway, Psalm 77, it says a psalm in my particular Bible. This is the uninspired title that is put there by the translators, but they just call it a psalm when overwhelmed. But it starts off to the chief musician of Jeduthun, a psalm of Asaph. Once again, Asaph, this is not the Asaph that was David's worship leader, but David's descendants were, I'm sorry, Asaph's descendants were referred to as either the sons of Asaph or Asaph. The name became synonymous with the worship leaders within the temple. And so we'll look at it from that perspective, from the perspective of a worship leader who is speaking to us based upon this situation that he's dealing with, this difficult situation. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, it says, The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And the context of that particular verse is the evaluation of a person. But it also holds true for the difficulties that we go through. The Lord examines our heart as we go through the trials of our lives. Because it's the trials of our lives that refine us. It's the trials of our lives in our Christian life that bring us to maturity. Now, part of the wedding ceremony that we did today was the ring ceremony. And what I always refer to in the ring ceremony is the metalsmith. The metalsmith, as he heats and melts the gold in this particular case, he allows the impurities to rise to the top through that intense heat. And what he does is he skims them off and he repeats the process until he's able to see his reflection in the molted metal. Then he knows that he's achieved the level of purity that he desires. Well, the Lord does the same thing in our lives. He allows the heat to be turned up from time to time. Again, trials and tribulations enter into our lives, but he's got reason and purpose for them. There's times when we feel that we're brought up right to the very limits of what we're able to endure, but God will never bring us over that limit. God will be there with us in the midst of that trial. And again, what he's trying to do is there's impurities within our lives that he's trying to do away with. He's trying to mature us. And so what this does, it should cause us to look at our trials and from a different perspective. We're told in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for the good. And so God's doing a good work in the midst of all things that may not be so much good within themselves. So we look at the hard times and we look at the good times, the difficult times, but if we look at it from that perspective, there's really no bad times. There may be bad things that occur, but God's doing a good work in us in the midst of the difficulty. And so it's God who knows the heart of the matter in order to reveal your heart in the matter and to see where we're at. Where is our level of faith? Where is our level of trust as we're going through that trial? And as I've said so many times, your trial is not my trial. My trial is not necessarily your trial. It's custom made for you to achieve God's purpose. The things that you struggle with may not be a struggle in my life. The things I struggle with may not be a struggle in your life, but that's okay because the fact of the matter is we all do struggle. But the thing about it is, as we read the Bible, 
their strength in the struggle. Their strength in the struggle. As I looked at our little babies as they were laying there and they, they, they wanted to turn over and they're struggling to turn over, well, you could just go and flip them every five minutes, but you're not doing them any favors. Why? Because they're building strength in that struggle. And sooner or later, they start to push themselves up. And as they push themselves up, then sooner or later, and you just kind of got to let them go because what does it do? It, it builds muscle. And it, and it builds agility as they're doing these things, as they're struggling along, and the end result is that they're able to walk. Now, that may not be a good thing, or makes your parenting a lot more difficult, but um, the reason they were able to do that, because at times you just needed to let them struggle in order for the purpose of their maturation, the maturation process. And it's the same thing that God does in our lives. So it's not so that God would know our hearts because God already knows heart. The Lord does not see as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The struggle is so that our heart is revealed to ourselves. Because so many times we so easily think that we've obtained, that we are the mature one. But then the trial comes and it doesn't seem like we've ever attained anything. It seems like we're brought to our knees, and you are brought to your knees. You're brought to that place of prayer. You're brought to that place of dependency. You're brought to the foot of the cross where you only have Jesus cling to, but then you realize that's the exact place that I need to be. Not dependency upon myself, but dependency upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when it comes to us, God is never surprised. God knows our hearts, and God allows the things into our lives for the processes that he has. Because God is purposeful, we know that he is always he's going to be faithful because he has reasons and purposes for everything he's going to be faithful to complete the good work that he starts we do know i'm sorry we do not know as far as psalm 77 the historical context of this psalm but we can look at biblical events to see asaph's state of mind here not too long ago i was driving to to church it was in the morning, and as I was driving, I was going through an intersection, and there were some cars that were smashed up and a bunch of people standing around. Didn't look like anybody was hurt, but there was an accident. And I often wonder in the accident, and I've even experienced it myself, just a matter of seconds before it happened, they were just going about their normal lives. They were just going about their everyday life. And then in a matter of seconds, things change. Things just went wrong. This trial entered in, and part of my point in that statement is we never know when we're going to be going through. God doesn't give us the appoint, his appointment book. He brings these things into our lives, and a lot of times we're blindsided by these things, not expecting them. There was the northern kingdom, if you recall, if you were with us in our studies through First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and so on and so forth. There was a split in the kingdom of Israel. After King David, King Solomon, there was King Jeroboam. King Jeroboam, he wasn't the, the best of rulers, and there was a split in the kingdom. He took the southern kingdom, which was Judah and Benjamin, and there was another one, Jeroboam. There was no relation between the two, but he took the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes were called Israel. The southern tribes were called Judah. Now, Judah was a little bit arrogant. So was the southern tribes as well. Later on, they would get theirs, if you will. But there was the northern kingdom, and their trial was on the horizon, and they were, they, they were warned by the prophet. 
Remember, we have God's word, and God warned them if they did not follow his words and his commandments, he would bring judgment upon them, and they ignored his word. So what did God do? God raised his voice by sending the prophet. He sent prophets warning them that they needed to quit the idolatry and get right with God, but they refused to do it. And then there was Assyria. Assyria was on the horizon. Assyria was a nation that was kind of like ISIS was there for a while a few years ago. They were running roughshod over the nations, and they were a very cruel people. But the northern kingdom believed, hey, we're God's people. This will never happen to us. But they weren't really God's people. Their heart was not right with the Lord. And the Lord raised his voice one more time by allowing the sword to come upon the land. In 2 Kings chapter 17, I just want to read what went on there because there is, a, I believe, a parallel between here and what we'll be looking at in Psalm 77. It says in verse 5, Now the king of Assyria went throughout all of the land and went up to Samaria. Samaria would be the capital of the northern kingdom and besieged it for three years. In the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria. That was their practice. They would go and they would conquer a nation They would kill most of the people, but the people that they didn't, they would take them somewhere else. And so, in essence, that nation would cease to exist. Then they would populate, repopulate that nation with another people that they had conquered from somewhere else. So in the ninth year of Hoshea, the king of Assyria took Samaria and carried Israel away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and by the harbor of the river uh, Gozan in the cities of the Medes. And so we have this detail on where these captives went. So it was that the children of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and they had feared other gods, they had served other gods, and had walked in the statutes of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel and of the kings of Israel which they had made. Also the children of Israel secretly did against the Lord their God things that were not right and they built for themselves high places in all their cities. This would be places of worshiping these false gods from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves sacred pillars and wooden images. Usually these things are of pornographic nature on every high hill and under every green tree. I'm not going to go through and read everything else, but I will go down to verse 18. Therefore, or because of all of these things, and the last thing it spoke of was them sacrificing their children, he says, therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel, the northern kingdom, and removed them from his sight. There was none left but the tribe of Judah, alone. So there was just the kingdom of Judah alone. Now, this should have been a warning to Judah. This is what happens. When you do this, this is what happens. When you serve other gods, then your God forsakes you. Then your dependency will be on these other gods. But the problem with the other gods are they don't exist. And what you have done is you have left the true living God and sought after other ones. And so they could do nothing for the people that God displaced in the promised land when he brought his people in, and when his people's heart changed towards them, they were not going to be able to do anything for them as well. The southern kingdom of Judah should have recognized this, but they didn't. They would go on to serve other gods as well, and if you recall, then Babylon later on in history would come in and decimate them as well. 
Now, in the midst of any trial that we experience, and all these things, it's so easy to think back on how good things used to be and long for those times again. And that's what has brought the psalmist to despair here. He's remembering the good old days. He's remembering how things were. The good old days when God's hand was visibly upon his people. He's remembering the blessings of the Lord and the effects that it has had upon him. You know how it is when it just feels like you're God's favored child. And, and, and it just seems like he's just bringing blessing upon blessing and you're just walking strongly in the Lord. But the problem is, is that they grew bored with that and their hearts were turned away. He remembers when they rejoiced in God's grace. They remember his promises when they were visible amongst his people and when the worship of God would radiate from their hearts. And again, this is Asaph, so he was even able to see that third party. He was even able to see it, how it had happened over all of the congregation. I have that perspective as a pastor as I hear the stories. Now I hear about the hard things as well, but I see the people who are blessed. Again, I was able to do this wedding and I'm standing just right over here and I'm looking at this, 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 this husband and his wife just coming to be. I'm able to experience this miracle that God is doing and causing the two to become one and just looking into their eyes and and just seeing the excitement that is there. And it's just a blessing to be a part of it. But then there's also the other side, but just a big, as big a blessing last Friday when I was doing Donna's funeral, officiating at a funeral as well. And just to realize the blessing of this person, although they have passed away from this life, they have gone into the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I get that perspective and I can understand what Asaph is talking about. Now, a little bit different, at least my understanding. I haven't seen it from this perspective, but now he's seeing that this stuff is, is no more. And really how, you know, the historical context that I want to just kind of keep in the back of our minds, we don't know what it is, but we looked at this previously, and it just seems to be kind of a theme that carries through, is Judah, when Babylon had then come in and carried away the captives, destroyed the temple, and destroyed the city. And I even kind of wonder, as I'm reading through Psalm 77, is maybe Asaph wandering through the rubble of the temple? And just thinking of these things, man, this is a place that I, I used to lead worship, and it's gone. What, what if this nation continues to go in the direction that it's going, and it becomes outlawed to have church? What, what happens if we're unable to gather together? What happens if we're able to worship the Lord corporately anymore? And it's just that vexation of heart that has just brought this thing to a reality and seeing that, well, in his mind, maybe these things will, will never happen again. Again, if he's a worship leader, he lives to lead worship. And what happens if he can no longer lead worship at all? Could be somebody who's just experiencing something in the Lord that will never happen again. We're going to divide Psalm 77 into five different stanzas. And again, I call them stanzas because these are songs. The first one is going to be verses 1 through 3, a cry in the midst of trouble. Second will be verses 4 through 6, memories of God. Third one will be verses 7 through 9, a series of questions. And I'll go through these individually. 
Fourth one will be verses 10 through 15, constructive biblical meditation upon the Lord. And then, fifthly, verses 16 through 20, the realization of God as redeemer to the helpless. So the first one we have is verses 1 through 3, a cry in the midst of trouble. So again, the titles are the inspired word of God to the chief musician to Jethun, a psalm of Asaph. I cried out to God with my voice, to God with my voice, and he gave ear to me. In the day of my trouble, I sought the Lord. My hands had stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. Selah. There's that word selah again. Selah, now keep it in mind, the Psalms are really songs. They're Hebrew songs. Selah would be a musical interlude for the purpose of interpretation for the purpose of reflecting back on what was just been said. And so Asaph doesn't seem like he's in a real good place. I mean, verse 3, I remembered God and was troubled. I complained and my spirit was overwhelmed. And so, again, if you're walking through the rubble, could be the rubble of the temple, could be a rubble of the trial that you're in, whatever it might be, we should be able to relate to what he's talking about. So not knowing what the trouble is, but the time of his trouble is very clear just simply because he told us it's that time when troubles can really be amplified, it's at nighttime. It's at nighttime when you have that time to think about it, when you have that time to consider what's going on. It's that time when all the things that take your mind off your troubles are kind of put aside, when you have only this overwhelming fear that washes over you. Notice nighttime is when troubles just seem to be magnified and become big in our life. There's little during that time, that nighttime. Either you wake up in the middle of the night or maybe you just simply couldn't go to sleep. And there's little to get your attention to take your mind off it. It's perfectly quiet. There's none of that raging of the day. Your mind seems to be sharper and you're alone with your reality. And that seems to be what's going on here with, with Asaph. But also notice, what is he doing? He's talking to God. He's at least got a good beginning because it's also a great time. And, and, and this is a key here. When you feel overwhelmed, you know, it could be during daytime too. It could just be a time when you're alone and you're facing the reality of what you're dealing with. It's the perfect time for prayer. Why would it be a perfect time for prayer? Well, going back to what I just said, there's little else to get your attention it's a time of quiet, your mind seems sharper, and you're alone with your reality. What better time to, or better place to become depressed or enter into prayer? To be overwhelmed by the giant in your life or to seek God out who's able to slay the giants in your life? And so the decision and the choice, it's all ours. The psalmist has made a good first step towards God, but notice something else in these three verses. He's got a condition. He's got a condition that we can well have the I, my, me's. What's an I, my, me? Well, there seems to be a preoccupation with the pronouns here. Four times he says I, five times my, and one times me. He's concerned about himself. He's all concerned. His focus is upon himself rather than Okay, Asaph, maybe you can't ever lead worship here again, but look at the big picture as well. Look at, the big, look at the future generations this is going to affect because God's promises are through Judah. 
The Messiah is promised to come through Judah. And, and so really we need to look, especially even because our trials, we can look at, at the at I, my knees. But it's not about the youths all the time. It's about what God's doing in the bigger picture as well. And we have to realize, although God does do a work in my, my personal life, but the reason that God does a work in my personal life, the reason that God brings me to maturity is for somebody else. It's for somebody else. Is the reason that I grow and the reason that I flourish in my Christian life isn't for me. I mean, I'll receive blessings, but it's that I will be able to give of those blessings to somebody else. Because once again... Everybody in here has been through trials and tribulations in their lives. Everybody in here is going to go through trials and tribulations in your life. Now, you've been told not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. And so you came to church tonight. That was a good thing. And so if you're going through a trial and tribulation in your life, even right now, and one that seems to overwhelm you, even as Asaph is here, I guarantee you there's somebody else in here that has gone through the same thing. There's somebody else that entered into that valley of the shadow of death, but realized that God was with them. And as they entered in, they also came out of it. And they learned a lesson from it. And the lessons that we learned are for the purpose, well, that we would be able to comfort others with the comfort by which we were comforted by, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And so God brings us together for these purposes. He's got the trials in my life. It's to grow me, mature me. But the reason is so that I would bear fruit in others. Again, those who bear fruit, what's the fruit for? The fruit is for others to come and partake of. And so maturity and whatever else, the fruit that I bear, it's for others to come and partake of. And so if the psalmist stopped here, you would have the call of the prayer of half the church today, the I, my, me, Lord prayer. Well, he's going to go through a process here as we see in Psalm 77. Now in verses 4 through 6 are memories of God. Verse 4. To hold my eyelids open, I am so troubled that I, I'm sorry, you hold my eyelids open, I am so troubled that I cannot speak. I have considered the days of old, the years of ancient times. I call to remembrance my song in the night. I meditate within my heart and my spirit makes diligent search. Ever have God hold your eyelids open at night, laid in bed and you couldn't sleep? Wasn't because of that pizza that you ate wasn't because of that hospitality that you had after church and you knew you shouldn't, but you did anyway. It wasn't because of that. It was just that God's trying to get your attention in the still of the night, in the quiet. See, if you refuse during the raging of our lives, if you refuse to listen to the soft, still voice of the Lord, God will quiet things down around you and he'll get your attention so that you hear the soft, still voice of the Lord. And that's the idea here is, is that God keeping him awake, he's holding his eyes open for the purpose of seeing something. So the question is, what is God showing him? What is God showing you during those times? Lord, what do you have for me? What is it that you want me to see, to pay attention to? In verse 3, he stayed awake to muse upon what God had done and contemplated about it. Well, he, he, we saw the I me mys, and it was kind of, he's kind of complaining here. See, examine your prayers. How do you pray to the Lord? Is it always an SOS prayer or a flare prayer? Or, or, or do you find yourself complaining a lot in your prayer? If you find yourself complaining, catch yourself because there's a problem in that. 
Heaven does not have a complaint department. It only has a solution department. So it's not complaining about your trial. God already knows about your trial. He's the one who allowed it to go on. But there's the solution. And the solution is in the growth. It's in the understanding. It's in the embracing. And it's in the desiring to see it through to be brought to completion. And so now the psalmist is contemplating all that he has done for God. Lord, I I used to stay up late into the night worshiping you. Again, verse 6, I call to remembrance my song in the night. I remember, Lord, how I used to lead worship and others used to be able to enter in. Lord, I used to meditate within my heart. Father, I used to pray. I used to make diligent searches. I was in your word. And now all of these things have entered in. And so again, there's still these elements of complaint, but he's getting better because as we saw the I, my, me's in the first stanza, in the second stanza, we are now just reduced to the I and, and, and my. It, it, the, the, the me's are, are, are gone. And so he, he's whittling it down. God's getting his attention and he's understanding, starting to gain a bit of understanding. And so and the, probably the crux of this study is in this third stanza where there's a series of questions. We're going to look at this series of questions, and really it's the reason that God has held open his eyelids, and consider these questions for us in light of the New Testament. Now, they're not going to all have New Testament answers, but in light of the New Testament, or maybe I should say in the light of the death and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and the sending of the Holy Spirit into our lives. Because what he asked, well, let me read the verses and I'll go back and pick them apart. In verse 7, will the Lord cast us off forever and will he be favorable no more? Has his mercy ceased forever? Has his promise failed forevermore? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Selah. Think about that. Now, there's that series of questions there. And if you've been with us for any length of time, we know when there's a question asked, the answer is usually to the negative. And so the implied answer to each of those questions is no. Will the Lord cast us off forever? No. Will he be forever favorable? No more? No. Has his mercy ceased forever? No. Has his promise failed forever? No. Has God forgotten to be gracious? No. Has he in his anger shut up his tender mercies? No. He hasn't. It may seem during that time that he has, but he hasn't. Now, Pastor Chuck was very fond of saying when something or things are going on that you don't understand, turn to that which you do understand. What is it that we understand? Well, it's that which gives us understanding is the Word of God. So, Christian, in the midst of your trial, Will the Lord cast you off forever? And again, that implied answer is no, because we know Hebrews 13.5, he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. God, it may seem like it at times, but God has said he will never leave you or forsake you. Now I'm speaking to born-again believers here. Now, how can, it just seems, Pastor, that, that he has at times. I seem so lonely at times. Well, it's not God who left, it's you who left. It's not God who turned from you, it's you who turned from God. Because number one, we know at the point of salvation that the Holy Spirit comes and dwells inside of you. So you have God dwelling inside of you even right now. 
And so, again, these are these promises. It's the reason we read the Word of God daily. It's the reason we study the Word of God. And so that we would remember these things. When it seems like God has cast me off forever, no, he's already told me, he will never leave me nor forsake me. Then he says, and will he be favorable no more? No, he's always going to be favorable towards his people. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. Now, the apple of somebody's eye isn't just the fondness of what they're looking at. The apple of somebody's eye is their pupil. And so what this means is he who touches you is poking God in the eye. Have you ever had your eye poked? Very uncomfortable, very painful. And the idea here is if somebody, if the source of your trial is a third party who's in sin or in wrong, as they are doing whatever it is wrong to you that they're doing, it's as if they're poking God in the eye. And so I see that if that is truly the case, then it's really God who they're bringing pain to. And if we, a lot of times, if we strip off all of the superficial things and the trials that we experience, in reality, the reason these trials have entered into our lives is because we have entered into Jesus Christ. The trials that we may have with our family members, it's because of our relationship with Jesus Christ. The trials that we have with work or wherever it may be, a lot of it is because we have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Why is the world so contrary to us? Because the world is contrary to God. And so as they come into our lives to vex our lives, again, keep in mind, they're in actuality poking God in the eye. Has his mercy ceased forever? Well, no, it hasn't, because again, we have rich promises. Psalm 118, verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. His mercy is not getting what you deserve. So that means as a born-again believer, you will never get what you deserve. What do we deserve? We deserve judgment. We deserve eternity apart from God. But again, his mercy endures That's a key word there, it endures. What does it endure? It endures your sinful nature. It endures your disobedience. It endures, although you're a child of God, God is long-suffering with you, and he continues to give you mercy. And if you look at that statement and you turn that, tear that simple statement apart, again, 118 verse 29, Psalm 118 verse 29, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of God's relationship with us. That's a strong promise. Wake up at night and you wonder, has his promise failed forevermore? Because if his promise has failed at any point, then all of you think that I'm reading does you no good. God is faithful. Again, what is God, you know, as we hear this term or even say this term that God is faithful, well, what is it that he's faithful to? Faithful to his people But in reality, what the correct answer is, he's faithful to his word. And so as God is supernaturally, because everything God does is supernatural, as he is faithful, that speaks volumes. We're told in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, For all the promises of God in him, in Christ Jesus, are yes and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Amen means so be it. The idea is they will, the promises will 
come to pass. There's going to be hard times and difficult days that it seems like the promises are gone. That's what Asaph is experiencing even right here, but that is not true. God is faithful and his promises are sure and steadfast. Asaph is laying in his bed at night. God's got his eyes open and he wonders, has God forgotten to be gracious? Hebrews 4, verse 16, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Once again, keep in mind, as I said before, mercy keeps us out of hell. We're not getting what we deserve. Grace gets us into heaven. Grace is us getting what we do not deserve. I deserve hell, but God's merciful, so I don't get that. I want heaven. God's given me heaven, salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. I don't deserve that, but that he has given me. Mercy keeps me out of hell. Grace gets me into heaven. God's forever merciful, and he's forever gracious. And so regardless of what I am experiencing in this life, when I am have my eyes open. I can't go to sleep at night. God's reminding me of who he is and how he ministers into my life. The thing that I have to remember, no matter what's going on, because keep in mind, the greatest trial that we will ever experience is going to be the day of our death, that God is gracious. He has gone to prepare a place for me, and where he is, there I will be also. Psalmist, he's not allowing him to sleep, and the psalmist wonders, has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? Has he just stopped? Isaiah 49, 15, can, and again a question is asked, can a woman forget her nursing child? The implied answer is no, and not have compassion on the son of her womb. The implied answer is no. Surely they may forget, man may forget. God says, yet I will not forget you. He goes on to say, I have inscribed you on the palms of my hands. His attention is no longer on himself here, but on God and whom God is to his people. Yeah, he's questioning God, but no longer is his focus upon himself. Now you see a bit of a change here. Now he is at least looking to the Lord. Brings us to our fourth stanza, verses 10 through 15. Constructive biblical meditation upon the Lord. Verse 10. And I said, this is my anguish, but I will remember the years of the right hand or the power of the Most High. I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I will also meditate on all of your work and talk of your good deeds. Your way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? You are the God who does wonders. You have declared your strength amongst the peoples. You have with your arm redeemed your people the sons of Jacob and Joseph, Selah. Meditate upon that or contemplate that. Now, what he's doing here is, again, as he turned in the previous stanza, his focus back to God, and now he's starting to focus upon the Lord or meditate upon God. Now, worldly meditation is not a good thing. The person who is entering the scriptures into the computer to show them up here says, hey, that's one of the questions that you're going to be answering on Sunday. We're having question and answer on Sunday. And one of it is, is it okay to meditate? It's not okay to meditate as the world meditates. Repetitive prayer is not a good thing. To say 10 our fathers and whatever is not a good thing. Jesus said, don't be repetitive in your prayer. Why? Because there's no heart in that. 
I mean, if I said to you, hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, Bob, how you doing? Hey, Bob, how you doing? After a while, you tell me to shut up. Well, kind of, that's the same thing we do with God. No, God wants to have a constant conversation. But the meditation that I'm talking about is, is just, and I think we miss this as the church today with our internet and our TV and all of these things, is just remembering the things that God has done. Remembering the miracles that he has done. And that's, that's what the psalmist is doing. He's remembering just the past power of God. How God loves his people. He's told, we're told in Deuteronomy chapter 7 that God loves his people just simply because he loves his people. That's all you get. God just loves you because he loves you. And, and as he loves us, he has only the best for us. He has a future and a hope for us. And, and, and God did this mighty hand to or exercise his mighty hand to deliver his people from Egypt, bring them through the sea, through the wilderness, through, over the river and into the land, eradicated the people and all of these things. And so he's thinking he had reason and he had purpose in this. It wasn't just to bring us to this point and then to do away with it. God, he worked that same miracle in your life if you're born again today. God brought you into his family. He changed you. He changed you at that moment of belief, at that moment of salvation. You became a, from a child of the devil to the child of God instantaneously at that point. And he brought you in for reason and purpose. Now, part of what God does is, keep this in mind, God does not punish you. Punishment is hell. He's going to punish the unbeliever, but God does correct you. And a lot of the trials and tribulations that we experience, just as we saw in 2 Kings, because they were worshiping other gods, God uses things to correct his people. And sometimes correction can be really difficult and kind of hard and really hurts. And so what he's doing here in the midst, and again, just think of it, how his attitude has changed if in fact he is standing in the midst of the rubble of Jerusalem and even the temple. He's thinking of the power of God. The same God that delivered us is able to deliver us from Babylon. The same God who brought us in here and we had this grand and glorious temple is able to rebuild this grand and glorious temple. The same God, when things were going so good, gave us this promise of Messiah, is the same God that is still able to deliver on that promise of Messiah, and we know that he did. And so once again, the past promises that have been fulfilled are for our benefit as well. That we would meditate upon God that has done these great things. When you feel cast off by God, just think of the great love with which he had for you, that yet while you were still a sinner, he died for you. And he brought you into his kingdom, and he saved you for reason and purpose. And any sins that you have committed, any shortcomings you have in your spiritual, your Christian life, God knew on the day of your salvation that those things were going to occur in your life, and he still decided to save you anyway. Now, he didn't save you in order to unsave you later on. God doesn't work in that way. God saved you knowing who you are and who you are going to be. But he's not going to give up either. Even though he knows your future and what's going to happen in your future, we're told that God inhabits eternity, he continues to strive with you. He continues to work with you because he always continues to love you. And so here... The psalmist is realizing the magnitude of the goodness of God based upon the past in the midst of a trial. There was another prophet who experienced that in that well-known verse in Isaiah chapter 6. There's Isaiah. 
Now, this is before Babylon comes upon the scene, and he understands, Isaiah, the things that are going on in the hearts of the people. Isaiah is the court, he's a prophet, but he's also the court historian. And so he has a close relationship with the king. He's got a favored position. And so he sees the people and how bad they are. And if you would read the first five chapters of the book of Isaiah, he's coming down on these people for who they are. He's coming down on these people for how they are. He's pronouncing judgment upon them. And I would imagine God looked at Isaiah and says, well, if I'm going to use you, something needs to change here. And so he says in chapter 6, in the year that King Uzziah died, Uzziah, remember he's a court historian, so he'd have a close relationship with the king. Uzziah was a good king, so I would imagine if you're favored by the king, things are pretty good for you. And so you can pronounce judgment, you can pretty much say whatever you want to say, and nobody's going to be able to do anything about it, pretty much as long as you don't say it to the king himself. But it was in the year that King Uzziah died that Isaiah is telling us something changed there. And something that during this hard trial it actually changed for the better. And so it could be for you, in the year that I lost my job, in the year that my health went upside down, in the year that I lost a loved one, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. It was through that trial that I saw the Lord. I saw the Lord God, the Lord God who had done so much. Because see, I had, my attention was somewhere else. Isaiah became full of himself, pronouncing judgment on everybody else. But it was when the one, or whatever it is that you've depended upon, has gone away that he saw the Lord. And more important than that, or just as important than that, I saw the Lord and he was sitting on the throne. He was sitting on the place where he makes judgments and determinations and where he works and moves, wields his powers in the life of his people. I saw the Lord, and he just didn't see the Lord walking by. He saw him. He was seated upon that place of authority, and this is a good thing. I saw the Lord sitting on the throne, and he was high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. I saw the Lord, and I saw that he was in the position of authority. And that can be a scary thing, because if you have a bad leader and he's seated upon the throne... That could be a bad thing for you, but what did he see? He saw the Lord seated upon the throne, and he saw the holiness of God. He he, he saw his majesty as he looked upon the throne and, and saw God there and realized the goodness of God. And although the trial was a hard thing, it was a hard thing for for Isaiah, for King Uzziah to die. It's a hard thing when you lose your job or whatever it might be that's going on in your life. But I saw that God only had the best for me because he is holy. And it says in verse 2, Above it stood seraphim, each one had six wings, and two he covered his faith, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one cried to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. It's not just that God is holy. And, and, and people have said, and, and I'm not saying this is untrue, that it speaks of the triune nature of God. God is triune, there's no doubt about it. But what I think he's speaking of here, God is holy to the third degree. God is holy in a way that we can never be holy. But that's okay. 
that's okay because the one who governs my life, the ones who gave me all of these promises is holy, which is his absolute purity to the ultimate degree. It says, And the posts of the doors were shaken by the voice of him who cried out, and the house was filled with smoke. So I said, Woe is me. Now, now what you see here is, is in the face of the holiness of God, Isaiah is faced with himself. Now remember, he was speaking judgments towards everybody else. We can be that way at times. But then he says, as he was saying, woe to everybody else. Woe is a warning of impending judgment. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. Now, it was during this repentance process, this acknowledgement of a sinful nature, repentance process, that it says in verse 6, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a live coal, which he had taken with the tongs of the altar, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is purged. And the implied idea here is now... He is prepared. Verse 8, Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send? Who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. And the idea in that statement is, Here I am, such as I am. Lord, send me. Here I am, an imperfect person. Here I am, I'm even brought to the point of despair. But God entered his life as he saw the Lord. It's then that he is prepared to go and do the work that God has called him to do. Asaph, as you're standing in the middle of that rubble and in that destruction, what you are able to do now is is to go out and speak of God and the goodness of God. As you meditate upon God and you remember these past works of God, you realize that this has happened because of your disobedience, just as God's word said it would. But he also has spoken of restoration and great promises that lie in the future. The God who was faithful in the past is going to be the same God that is going to be faithful in the future as well. Verses 16 through 20, the realization of God as redeemer of the helpless. Verse 16, the waters saw you, O God. The waters saw you, they were afraid. The depths also trembled. The clouds poured out water. The sky sent out a sound. Your arrows also flashed about. The voice of your thunder was in the whirlwind. The lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. Your ways in the sea... Your paths in the great waters and your footsteps are not known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. And the idea here is this mighty God who has done all of these things that are huge is the same God that has led his people. And so what he's thinking back is, is Moses, again, deliverance from Egypt, through the sea, across the wilderness, across the river and into the promised land. Why did God save them? God saved him because God had reason and purpose in it. And God's reason and purpose are not fulfilled. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And so that's another great promise that we have from the Lord. And we embrace these promises because we know that the day of trials and tribulations are going to come. And as our faith is tested, at times we're going to wonder, whatever happened? Well, God's continuing to do a work and God is going to be faithful to complete it 
I need to be faithful to receive of what he has for me. And I'm just going to close with this, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. It says, Behold the proud, his soul is not upright in him, but the just shall live by faith. And so Habakkuk, again, wondering what in the world are the things that are going on as God is bringing judgment upon the land. But then Habakkuk comes to a great conclusion. He says in verse 17, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, yet and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. And the Lord God is my strength, and he will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. Hills, not heels, hills. <laughs> He's understanding that it may seem like things are falling apart, yet my God is with us. Your God will never leave you, nor will he forsake you. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for, for your word, God, and these rich promises that we have. And then we even see in Psalms and, and similar scripture, Lord, how these things integrate into the lives of your people. And Lord, I pray that you would cause them to be integrated into our lives, even in this place tonight, that we would embrace these things and that we would hold them dear, that we would realize just as Asaph went to tr through trials for reasons and purposes, we go through trials for reasons and purposes as well. Just as you met that man Asaph in a very personal way, you'll meet us in a very personal way. Lord, you love us all, and you love us all the same. You do not love King David any more than you love us, any greater or any less. And that being the case, God, your attention is towards us all. So, Father, may we be a people who learn to look at your throne and see you seated there, to see your holiness and understand everything that you do is perfectly good and is perfectly right. And I pray through that, Father, that we would gain a strength and that, Lord, we would be a force in your hands to share the gospel, to see salvation go out throughout all of this world, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?